I never once thought that maybe because they lived in America that their belief systems were changing too. You need to become a doctor because we need to be financially secure. My journey gives me a different perspective on life. Everyone is like that. I kind of feel a little more fearless in chasing music all the way. I want you to learn that there's a difference between speaking poorly about your parents and speaking clearly about things that are affecting you. The fulfillment is not going to come without hard work. You know in your heart kind of who you are. It's the right choice. It's 100% the right choice. So go learn your math. We teach these girls how to study in general. There's like hours There's like a deeper meaning behind all of this. Like it's, it's how you were raised, what you were taught, what you were conditioned to believe. This is the Desi Condition. Hello everyone, this is the Desi Condition. I'm your host, Anushri. Welcome to season three. Thank you so much for joining. We start the season off with a bit of a grim note with the eruption of the Black Lives Matter protests everywhere. Uh, So I decided to just throw out the whole schedule that I had um, and just talk about this first. And this is super important. Um, I think that we as South Asians need to need to be allies with Black Lives and need to also acknowledge some of the privileges that we have um, over other Black and Brown bodies. And this is really the only way that we can be allies the best that we can. My team and I have noticed that there is a lot of here's what we can do and here are talking points. Uh, to speak with uh, whether it's your parents or other friends or etc and not too much of scenario mapping what actually happens in that scenario so what we decided to do was to get on IG live with like activists old and new um, blending couples like just all kinds of people um, who are now or have always been very interested in supporting black lives and just talking about activism and scenario mapping what activism looks like One of the reasons I also really wanted to do this is because the South Asian community, especially in the U.S., just owes the Black community so much. Um, Every single right that we have is something that the Black community fought for. And, you know, they deserve our allyship. But it's not just that, you know, I I see a lot of people talking about how we owe everything we have to the Black community, and that's fair. But we should also just care because they're people and they deserve to be cared for and they deserve our allyship. So this episode is meant to discuss what we can do as allies that will actually be meaningful beyond posting on social media, which is important, by the way, um, but oftentimes people just don't know what else they can do. Um, Another important topic, I think, is just the fact that activist work is mental health work. You're forced to face the darkest parts of yourself, and as South Asians, we really need to do that. We need to think about how is it that we treat our minorities, you know? We need to talk about Hindu supremacy and anti-Muslim rhetoric, anti-Sikh rhetoric. We need to talk about 1984 Sikh genocide. We need to talk about what we do to LGBT bodies and lives in India, in South Asia, And it's not to take the focus away from black lives, because the focus of this movement is black lives, is police brutality and dismantling police brutality and just white supremacy as as it is a part of systemic racism. The point is not to detract from any of that stuff, which is the main focus, but the point, but we can't be good allies unless we understand what it is that we do to our minorities. You know, and we can do as much as we want to do for the Black community, but 
eventually those things are going to catch up with us. Activism requires reflection. Activism requires reflection. And if we don't think about how we're treating our own minorities, then we're being inconsistent. And it's going to reflect in the work we do for Black lives inevitably because it's now coming from a place where we fully understand our own actions and tendencies and biases and where they come from. I want to preface these conversations by noting that we're not by any means done having these conversations, but this feels like a good time to start collecting some of the responses that we've gotten or some of the conversations that we had and highlighting key takeaways. But we will continue to have these conversations and keep having Instagram lives and keep posting about it and keep talking to people in our communities and keep sharing resources that you can use in order to further educate yourself and further support the cause, as well as, of course, just acknowledging South Asian privilege. What you are about to hear are excerpts from the Instagram live conversations that I mentioned before. If you are interested in hearing any of them, you can always visit the Instagram page for the Instagram page for the full version on the IGTV tab. The first guest we hear from today is Monica. She penned an open letter to South Asian dads everywhere based off of her own experience with her dad. She and Anu, who is the communications lead at the Desi Condition, speak about racist, sexist, homophobic, and bigoted family and friends, how to approach conversations with them, and what to do when you're met with resistance. So I'm just reading off my laptop, so I'll be looking off to the side. Um an open letter to my father and to all other South Asian fathers who are racist, sexist, homophobic, and bigoted. It hurts when you mindlessly spew the spiteful words of a president I despise with every fiber of my being, a president who has no regard for anyone but himself, filling his pockets with money and his mind with incessant praise, a man who has made a mockery out of the prestigious role of commander in chief. It stings when you so adamantly support his economic policies, blinding yourself to the injustice and corruption he breeds. You preach peace and helping the less fortunate in Hinduism. But when it comes time for actionable accountability, you vote for a man who will protect your money, not human rights of the country in which you have chosen to build our home. Arguing with you is looking at a reflection of the president, red-faced, illogical, shouting insults instead of answers. It's emotionally draining and utterly unproductive. It burns when you defend a president who loathes women, who believe it is his God-given right to grab him by the pussy. A man whose only response to a strong opposing female is to call her nasty. I wonder why stripping women of their rights to choose what happens to their bodies is a high he feeds off of. But when asked to allocate funds for child support and healthcare, Trump and, are, and their ilk are the first to turn their backs. It cuts deep when you so easily embody the hate that was passed down to you, repulsion of a larger ratio of melanin in skin cells, ignoring decades of systemic racism and pointing at stereotypes of black people being lazy or dangerous, falling into the false praise of being a model minority, you don't get to pretend you are not a part of this country's racism. If you had to live for if you had to live in fear for the mere crime of existing, perhaps you would not be so cavalier about why the country is where it is today. But the part that rips me to shreds is that it's you, Baba, you, the man who raised me, nurtured me, 
loved me, the man who I look up to in so many ways. It is you, my Baba, who is racist, sexist, homophobic, bigoted. This is what breaks my heart. I want you to talk about um, anti-racism being mental health work. Um, you know, you don't have to get into details, but I do feel like it's something to touch upon. And I think that a lot of our listeners would like to, would like to hear about that too. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I would say the, the mental work, the mental health work uh, has come in um, for a long time now. I've, I've, I've started going to therapy and one of the big things that I wanted to conquer personally was working through my anxieties and feeling overwhelmed when talking to my parents. Um, and uh, honestly, anyone who I'm close to where I feel that kind of emotional burden on myself. And I genuinely believed if I could find ways to communicate positively, then my message would be heard, my view would be listened to, and it would just be clear. Um, but unfortunately, as I've found out, there are people who will put up resistance and it won't always go positively. That emotional work um, of checking yourself, of educating yourself and learning to do better, that's all you can do really. You know, you can't go into it expecting to change people. You can't, right. it, it's really difficult. It's really difficult. But when you're the one who's doing all the emotional work, um, it's not your burden to bear if someone who's close to you continues to act this way or feel this way. Yeah, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned that when I spoke to you earlier, you mm -hmm. said something about not being sure not to take responsibility for someone else's beliefs and their actions. Can you for just sure. elaborate on that a little bit? Um, well, I think uh, the, the letter clearly states a lot of opinions that my, my father holds either, you know, um, openly or, or just because he turns a blind eye to it. And uh, I think writing all of that down made me realize that I just, I, as an adult, as, as someone who is growing, I don't yeah. hold these beliefs, you know, but other than telling him, and I have on multiple occasions that I don't think this is right and where I'm coming from, it's not my emotional responsibility to change him it's not on me to say that this is the work that you have to do because I think people are only going to change when they want to what matters a lot is your degree of closeness with these people because I a lot of what I've been seeing on social media right is that if you don't agree with this just you know unfollow me and right or right. you know you know just I don't want you in my life. And that's so easy. That's so easy to say to someone who you're not close to, you know, one of 500 followers or whatever. Right. Um, but when it comes to someone who you're, who you love, right. The dichotomy of living with the fact that they have these opinions and that you love them and you can't just shove them out of your life. That's, it's really difficult. And for, for me, honestly, um, I chose my emotional preservation over having this conversation, at least as of now. I mean, I definitely plan one day when I feel like, you know, I'm not under his roof, when we're not quarantined together and, and having to spend so much time, when I feel like it won't bring the roof down on me in terms yeah. of my emotional well-being. I definitely plan on having this kind of a conversation with him. 
But at least as of now, uh, it's important for me to recognize that this is who my father is. This is what he believes and thinks. And also, I think even acknowledging that is really, really difficult for some people. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it was it was hard for me to, to write this piece. But when I posted it on Little Brown Diaries, and a huge shout out to how supportive that community is, um, when I posted it and the overwhelming amount of support I received, it helped me know that I'm not the only person, you know, who has to yeah. deal with parents or loved ones who are difficult like this. And that, I guess all I want to say is you're not alone in that, but having these difficult conversations with your loved ones, um, I don't think that's the only way to support the movement and to help the cause. I think mm -hmm. educating yourself and your, you know, recognizing your own inherent biases are For sure. probably one of the most important things you can that's, do. I think, I think that's the foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then obviously like donating time and money, whatever you can, that's, that's huge. Um, there's there's other things you can do and so saying that having these difficult conversations is the be all end all i don't necessarily agree with that being said i do think that you should acknowledge your truth and whenever you're ready speak that truth yeah yeah no absolutely i think so i feel like i'm gonna so i'm i i already mentioned my story of um you know mm -hmm. having like a tough conversation with someone that i was that i was once involved with and um, I feel like there's one takeaway I do have from that experience. Um, it's just calling it out. You know, it's it's very like, it's a very simple, very like small thing. Um, mm -hmm. And also easy, easier said than done. But I think that just calling it out is really important. And, and I'm going to say this, and I, I feel like, you know, someone in the whoever's watching, if, if anybody wants to, you know, challenge me on this or or you know if they want to they want me to speak on this more I feel like it's very hard to navigate dating someone else who's Desi who who and 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 then finding out that they have these horrible extreme biases and you just don't know what to do with it I like I've been in that situation and I feel like when I you know like when I figured it out I was just floored and I didn't like in like immediately I was just like this is no I like I like no I'm done with this like I can't do this but I I remember having I remember forcing myself to take the time to actually engage and ask this person why they felt this way or wh why does this person think this way and just like open like trying to just encouraging them to to face their own biases and I was always met with some stupid answers like oh my friends joke about this or you know like oh like I mean who doesn't who doesn't believe that um, look, look, turn on the TV, you know, like this, you, you see them on the news like this, like, what, like just stereotypes. And, you know, I'm, I think that if in, when you find, find yourself in that type of situation, you have to call it out as awkward and as, you know, just not fun. It is, it's so important to do it. And I remember it just being so awkward when I did it. Like I, I, I was just like, wait, why did you say that? You know, like that's, that's, that's not funny. I like, I didn't find that funny. And it was over just like a microaggression and like something you would think is small. But when you hear these small things, that points to something much deeper within, within a human being, like, like their biases run deep and you need to figure out why. And I think that I having just, just calling this person out and 
opening up the floor for discussion was was not only um, empowering for for me, but it also it, it made me realize that there's something going on in within that person where a barrier is breaking. Like they're whether or not they they continue whether or not they continue to believe what they believe or whether or not they change. I mean, I don't know. People change when they want to change. There's mm -hmm. something that happens in them where you see that like oh like well, I didn't even realize I said something that was, that was offensive or I was, uh, you know, I, that, that this was a microaggression. I don't, I, I didn't even think of it like that. And you start to see that change in them. And even, even if you decide, you know, you don't want to converse with them anymore, you don't want to engage with them anymore. I feel like doing that, like that simple act is enough to spark like a change within them so that they start asking themselves questions, you know? The next conversation contains excerpts from the conversation between Ravi, who is the Desi Conditions audio engineer, and his sister Bina about how biases can be passed down through generations. They talk about how generational biases develop and how education breaks us out of that cycle. They also talk about why it's so important to get our families and communities behind the movement and support it. Again, these are all excerpts and not the whole conversation. So it might sound a little bit disjointed, but the point still stands. With our parents, like <laughs> to an extent, it's almost like they get the opportunity that we didn't get because we, we learned about like American history in a way that deliberately like erases like the voices and experiences of black people and other marginalized groups. Yeah but they just didn't get that education at all. So at least when they start learning about it, they can learn about it from, from a perspective where these voices can be included. Mm -hmm. um, whereas we have already gotten sort of like our, you know, we've gotten taught a picture of American history and we have to unlearn things. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Not that they don't also, right. but you know, in regards to like history, yeah. we have to unlearn things. Yeah. In addition to education, we need to, we have, you know, a lot of South Asian people have socioeconomic status that um, allows them to, to donate and give, right? But they're, they're not giving that money in the right ways to, or to the right organizations. They're not aware of the ways to give um, and, and provide to organizations that could use that money and that help, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I would, I would rather our communities spend money and, and put it toward, um, you know, organizations that are working to fight against discrimination and criminalization of, of uh, Black people in this country um, than to put on, like, a dance competition, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so so our, we have a lot of power and money. Yeah. Um, and we need to use that. But we also need to use our voices. Yeah. And um, that means, you know, being, being aware of what's going on and being more... Um, up to date and, and aware of the issues that are going on in the black community and talking about them with each other, but also being able to turn that into like a political action. Yeah. Right. So votes. Not going just votes. Well, I mean, Not you know, votes, votes is one aspect, mm -hmm. right? So votes, going out and supporting protests, making your voice heard, education of other people who might not necessarily. Yes. Vote. Yeah. Like and connect and, and a big part of that is connecting with the organizations that already exist in your local area yeah. because they probably already have workshops and trainings that you can bring to your workplace to your yeah. community events like there there are things out there it's just a matter of, of, of taking advantage of them yeah. and using them yeah i agree i agree 100 percent uh the other thing we were talking about earlier is not just 
looking at like overarching Black Lives Matter um, organizations, um, but looking at organizations that are also more specific. Yes. So talking about like Black trans lives, talking about Black motherhood, um, there are organizations specifically for that, or Black youth, right? Investing in, in those things as well, because I know that a lot of the organizations um, that are sort of like well-known, right, like the Black Lives Matter movement are being overwhelmed by the amount of donations. But there's lots of like funds that are going without donations that yeah. could use that money. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, you know, trying to trying to help out in ways that are going to make an impact on um, your local community, but also just like not <laughs> more more um, vulnerable populations too, right? Yeah, I agree. So I think all of this ties in well with the next conversation about intersectionality with Priyanka, because the point that Bina is getting at here is that it's important to be supportive of all Black lives. In the next conversation, Priyanka and I take that a step further. We dive a little bit deeper into intersectionality and specifically how important it is to reflect and decolonize the mind in order to be an effective ally. Today, uh, we have a really interesting conversation planned, I think. We're talking about intersectionality and activism and how they intertwine with each other, and especially why it's important for us as South Asians to think about our internal biases that, um, that we have been taught from a young age. And um, for people who are just getting into activism work, why it's important to address those biases. Because, you know, we can try to do whatever it is that we want to do for Black lives, but ultimately, if you don't address how we ourselves treat our, our minorities in South Asia, eventually it's going to bleed into the work that you do for Black lives. Yeah. Um, intersectionality was one of the topics that was really, that's really important, especially part of this movement, um, because um, intersectionality is all about spaces that are intertwined, um, that affect an identity and a person um, facing many oppressions, forms of oppression. Um, so, for example, uh, trans black lives or black trans lives um, are, are being killed disproportionately. Um, and a lot of the times the movement takes them out and their identities out and that's that's just one one layer of it and having to address that in the south asian community is just a whole different conversation it's like where do we start there um so talking about intersectionality um is, is really important and making sure that when we talk about black lives and anti-blackness we're not just talking about one specific black person we're talking about trans black people and queer black people all black people women that are black black women um that's really important yeah, I have noticed that there has been more attention towards Black men. They deserve attention, that's fine, um, but not as much towards, like you're saying, women and trans lives or, or queer lives and, and um, all these other groups that are equally important. Yeah, um, I would say that, like, I mean, they are all important, um, but in, imagine being in a group of people that are um, oppressed and then having um, different groups within that group being disproportionately attacked and killed. Um, for mm -hmm. example, Tony McDade was killed two days after George Floyd was. I, I didn't see the media cover it, at least just the no. media that I I consume definitely covered it because that's that's what I choose to just to consume, the content. Um, but um, trans women like Rhea Milton, Dominique Remy Fells, um, it's really important to say their names and it's really important to bring them up in these in this fight um, because we're not just covering we're not just we're not just fighting one, one identity. We're fighting a lot. 
um, when I, when my first approach to like understanding how can I have this conversation of anti-blackness in in the South Asian community, this mm -hmm. community, um, I went. I first was. I, I've been having these conversations for a very very long time in my life. Um, that's why my mom's on here, having uh, like watching me. And she's like, damn, I've heard this so many times already. Um, but <laughs> having these conversations over and over again because um, realizing that the systems that have created the Desi community are very, very aligned with white supremacy, for example. Um, and that comes from so, so many, so many things like caste, imperialism that has existed in India for so long, fascism, um, different systems that are in place that are very equivalent to uh, anti-blackness um, or white supremacy in, in America. Um, and so I think that like the, the, when you do that decolonization process is to understand how you can, if you can see the, the relatability between what's happening here to mm -hmm. the minorities and the people that, that are in India or our community. You mentioned uh, all the parallels between the colonization work in India or South Asia in general versus here in America. Like in regards to, what uh, sorry, in regards to like how um, we treat minorities over there versus how we treat minorities here. There's a lot of parallels there. So I want you to talk about like how you came to start thinking about that and how, how you came to start seeing it that way. Um, I guess like, I guess like, I mean, it came, a, um, it came, a, I want to say being a minority of India it came pretty like it kind of slapped me in the face and when i started doing the hit like the reflection and the research on my own my own ancestors i started realizing that the indian government has never been pro-sikh um you know and any time that Sikhs in india would ask or fight for their or protest for their lives uh they were met with police brutality they were met with um, um anti-sikh rhetoric like calling them terrorists um and uh to this day there are um systems in place that keeps Punjab and six in a particular place. And that's very similar to um, what's happening here, but it's really important to, to, and I think you said this yesterday, it's really important to talk about how it's completely different, right? Because what's happening here is, is, is very different than what has happened to the sick people. But I think that one thing that I can relate to um, it being very similar to this is the caste, caste situation that's happening in India. Um, if you, if you believe that your caste is higher than someone else's caste, then you believe that you are born into being a lower person than this other person and that your worth is not, you're not as worthy as this other person. And that's exactly what, what this, the, what, what white supremacy is rooted in is, is that white people are superior and that black people are not or anything in between. And I think that that decolonization also comes from that. I think that, that, Desis are always like, well, at least, you know, if I'm closer to the white folks or I'm closer to, to the white man, like, That's I'm, the safety I'm good. Net. I'm yeah. good. Like, I don't have to worry about it. Little do they know. Like, you don't think these people are going to turn on you? Like, come on. <laughs> they don't care about you. Um, that's just not to make a joke about it, but it's, it's just like it's you're a person of color. Um, and um, I think that the parallels are definitely there. And I think that this is why I, I, when I talk to my grandma, for example, about this because I don't I don't take her out of this I hold her accountable too my daddy gets held accountable um, I talked to her about this and I talked to her about what has happened to Punjab and what has happened to Sikhs in India and I'm just like how do you not feel inclined 
to want to fight for these injustices. Like it's in your blood, like your entire, your faith system started on, on the oppressive, um, the, the rulers in India. Like, why isn't this so important to you? So I want to ask you, how are conversations that you have um, in, in your activist mind um, with other people trying to like convince them of, to like unlearn certain things or just teaching them new things? Um, I, I don't, I don't know if I would say that I like, I don't convince any, I don't know if I would say it's convincing work. Um, I think that like when, when having conversations that, that are met with like resistance or people that may not have the same mm -hmm. views as me, um, I think that those conversations really look like a lot of asking questions, um, a lot of listening, active listening. Um, because if I, I can sit there and spew a lot of things, I can sit there and say a lot of things that I feel. Um, but to understand where the connection is being made in these other people, like why are they thinking this way or where does this information come from? Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the times I find myself like, if I ask enough questions, the, the question will just be answered. They'll just hit a roadblock where they're like, where am I getting this from? Like, where am I getting this information from? Why am I not worried about this? Um, but also like a lot of checking, a lot of checking. Like, I think that if there is something that is said that's incorrect, I don't, I'm not gonna sit there uncomfortable while this person, just to, just to make this person feel comfortable. That's just not like what's gonna happen. So I think mm -hmm. that a lot of these conversations look like being like, no, you're wrong. Like that was incorrect. Like that is not, that is not what's happening. Um, and here's why. And, and I think these conversations can happen um, in a very respectful way. Um, and they can happen in a way where you are exchanging ideas. Um, I think that this movement is so interesting because I don't think that this is just about tackling racism anymore. I think this is, this is like addressing and holding people accountable that are brown and black and part of uh, communities that are not white. Um, and anyone that's a bystander or anyone that is not doing the work is being checked at this point. It's not just like, we're just addressing racists. Um, we're addressing people that are not racist, that do agree that there should be less black people dying by the police, um, but are doing nothing about it. So I think that some of those questions do, some of the, those conversations that I have, have to do with that. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, you're sitting here and we're talking about the problem, but what is the work that you're doing? Um, and those conversations look like, well, this is how I do it. I don't know how to do it. And then it's like, there's resources everywhere. Find them, find them and, and, and don't ask somebody that's black. <laughs> don't ask one of your black friends to do it. Um, uh, they're tired. People are tired of doing this work. That's emotional labor that nobody wants to do anymore. Um, it, there's resources everywhere. So I feel like a lot of that conversation, just checking them so they can go and do that work and go figure it out, how they're going to support the movement, how they're going to do the work that they have to do because they're in, they're sitting in a privilege. They're sitting in privilege that they, they can think about whether they want to do it or not while there yeah. are black people dying in the streets. Whereas black people don't have, they don't have this option of being like, mm, maybe I will, I, maybe I will educate myself. Maybe I will think. They don't have that option. So sometimes I think about like, okay, you can't be conflict diverse and also be anti-black or also have these, um, um, have these, uh, these uh, views or act, be an activist. Um, because it, this is something about like a 
getting the skills, um, this conversation should be about like getting skills um, to not be conflict averse. Why do you shy away from uncomfortable conversations? Why is it hard for you to hold people accountable? And why is it that now you're talking about it in 2020? Like black people have been dying this entire time. So like, yeah, it's a lot to dismantle because we haven't been doing the work for this long. So, yeah, and they've been telling us this for centuries, and we just haven't been, people just haven't been listening, haven't been taking it seriously. Right. So I just want to be clear, I've been seeing a lot of South Asians and Asians using this opportunity to talk about colorism, anti-Muslim, anti-Sikh, anti-queer, etc. sentiments in our own community, which is super important, but I just want to stress that we needed to talk about that stuff anyway. Particularly, I've been seeing this with colorism, which is kind of problematic because colorism is not the same as racism. It's not, not, not the same as racism. So please let's stop equating the two. We should talk about colorism because yes, it absolutely contributes to racism and anti-blackness, but to define it as the first step is problematic because it implies that it's the center of the movement and it isn't. Dismantling colorism is a lot of work and to see an issue like Black Lives Matter and think, all right, let me start with color is just focusing in on your own community. Talk about colorism. You should, but do a million other things too. It's too much to think that colorism is the first step to take. We need to be doing all these things concurrently. And ultimately, it doesn't do anything to change these policies and the laws that let cops off the hook for their crimes or to change systemic racism. It's just one step. It's just one step, people. Is the color of black skin the only reason we have anti-blackness in our communities? Fuck no. It has to do with white supremacy, the model minority myth, decolonization, and so, so much more. So your colorism argument, if it stands by itself, is just you centering yourself, so please stop. Please let's not use this movement as a reason to center ourselves and to talk about the things that we should have been talking about anyway. It is, however, important to hold ourselves accountable for how we treat our minorities, and it will reflect on how we treat minorities anywhere. And I think that's the point that often goes missed or goes unmentioned when this stuff comes up. I don't know if it's because of some superiority complex that we have as South Asians or from just not mentioning it, but it's really important to acknowledge. And I think this next conversation with Anu and Patik covers the topic of superiority well. They talk about the model minority myth, Hindu supremacy, religion, education, and action. They start off by talking about religion and family, and I actually love this segment because some of us are so, so religious, and it's literally hypocritical to not align with the movement for Black Lives. There's also a super interesting parallel drawn towards the end between Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Gandhi, and Bhagat Singh. We talked about um, religion versus culture, and I thought mm -hmm. that was so interesting because that's I've, I've gotten into conversations with multiple people about that, you know, like I, and like any, any brown people that, you know, are not really, that don't really understand what's going on. You know, the first thing that they say to me is, well, you know, our religion is, is so all encompassing, you know, like, a, like every single religion takes from ours, blah, 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 all this stuff. And I was like, okay, but can you say that about our culture? Like, we're, we're so egotistical, you know, like we put ourselves up on this pedestal. Mm -hmm. And, but then we go to the temple and, and preach, you know, loving our brothers as, as, you know, as, as though they were like loving anyone that, 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 that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't come from the same place as us as, as, as they are, they are our own. So like, there's such a, it's almost like a, it's, it's hypocritical. And, you know, I, like, I, 
I, I would take out the word almost. It's not almost. It, it is. It is. It hundred percent, hundred percent is, and it's and and that's and that's like the most uncomfortable. I feel that people will get. Like I have, like anytime I have gotten somebody brown that is just like, well, no, like I, you know, I'm not like I'm not. How can you say that I don't care about people? And I'm like, well, I'm not gonna say you don't care about people, but you only care about what serves you, right? If it doesn't affect you, you don't care about it. And, um, and I think that's just like, that's just the, the, the general consensus um, that most, you know, like that, 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 that a lot of Daisies that, that are not, you know, that don't see what this, this movement is even about or, or, what, or mm -hmm. why they should even care about this to begin with. There's a good amount to unpack there. But so I think for, for South Asians and Indians specifically, um, like even myself, I wouldn't say that I'm religious. I would say I'm more cultural and spiritual. But yeah. the really unique thing about, let's say, Hinduism is that culture and religion are very side by side. They're not too different from each other. Um, and, and within that culture and within the religion of Hinduism, there's a, a super central concept of God resides in every living thing. And I think... For us to really talk about relating to the movement going on right now, the relation of us and others, you got to be able to knock down that ego, like you mentioned before, that pride and that ego. I think for a lot of people, even though they don't act Indian, they they rely on their identity of being Indian, their culture. Oh, my God. Let's, let's talk about this performative allyship slash wokeness. And this is where, mm -hmm. you know, might be a little uncomfortable for some people yep. um but you know I think that, that I the think next something that, is, yeah i think i think that it's something to to definitely acknowledge because it's so apparent and like when i when i spoke to you earlier today we we were talking about it and i was like you know i like i knew i i knew what performative allyship was but i just didn't know what the term was for i didn't know that there was a term for it until recently yeah. and it's like now i'm like oh yeah like that's that's what it is um just like and and and, and we we brought it we talked about it and you mentioned you know, it being synonymous to an auntie that shows up at your house, um, asking, you know, basically like being really kind to you and telling you, you know, she's there for you for anything, but then leaving, going home and just talking shit about you and not really caring. Same yep. thing, you know, same thing. And for herself, she felt great that she walked over. She'll oh, tell her family, husband, oh, I was over. I saw the neighbors. I, I, we talked, we sat down, we had chai nasta, but then like, what did you really do for them? Besides just literally face value, sat yeah. down, said, peace and then actually talk them down to someone else and it's it really is all right like kind of bringing it back to what we talked about with religion and culture how can how can how can i sit there and, and just do a, a surface level show for this movement and then not even act like i'm bothered or cared right. or care right if if i'm sitting here saying look the the same i think we call it superpower because i'm not even too into religion but if yeah. i say that superpower god within me is the same superpower you have how can there be a power dynamic you're the same as me i'm the same as you mm -hmm. if something's happening to you as a person you as a group of people it's not just about me feeling some kind of way about it it's i should actually be bothered to the point where i want to do something about it yeah because something's happening to my fellow person not just that community and i think that's where the difference is in that performative allyship versus being an ally. There's putting something up on social media to putting up to, a black square, yeah. putting up a, put if you're a company, yep. you're putting out a statement, but you're not you're not hiring black executives, 
Um, You're not putting the action behind the words. Right. And, and as you mentioned in our conversation where, um, you know, politicians are still all about funding the police, but they're, you know, they're okay with yeah, having so like painting. New York. They recently talked about they're going to put one street in every borough with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. But yeah, that looks great on paper and it'll distract from the movement going on right now. It kind of but literally like it eases it just it just it just kind of like it's there to um to ease the tensions and to quiet the rage. It's just appeasing whatever someone right. may think they want, right? right we want right. change, we wanna we wanna see you doing something. Hey, let me toss you a bone. But like painting a street and, and calling it something different isn't going to change the systems you rely on to hang on to power, authority, and so on, right? Yeah. We can say, hey, New York made XYZ declarations, yeah. but both the governor and the mayor of New York City aren't even on, in agreement with defunding the police. So what difference does it make if they paint the street, whatever color, write whatever words they want, if there's no action to back it up? Right. And I think that's, that's really that, that performative, I wouldn't even call what they're doing allyship. It's just yeah. performance. I think this is probably the most difficult thing that we, being the, the first generation here, that we will face. Really breaking down those walls, breaking down those barriers, and not just having the conversation with our parents and grandparents, but making it a productive conversation. Yeah. Beyond, yeah. beyond just, hey, why aren't you guys upset? Hey, why don't you guys feel a certain kind of way? Because it doesn't just start or stop there. For us, we have to take that conversation to the nth degree of, guys, why, why do you feel like you don't have a say in this? Why do you feel like this isn't your fright? Why is it not your problem, right? And I think we were talking about how kind of backwards it is that our parents want us to be a certain kind of way, right? They want us mm -hmm. to act with integrity. They want us to have certain values. They want us to... In, in, imbibe all this culture that we have yeah. but then actually follow that culture and watching out for fellow human beings and i think it will be the number one struggle in this there of course there are some folks our age who are just as and for lack of better words just as ignorant in it and saying it's not my fight i'm i'm good where i'm at let me keep the status quo mm -hmm. that white talked about um but for the most part it's it's our generation's number one fight will be that. I don't think any of us have a problem learning some more, no. educating ourselves some yeah. more. Most of us have been educating ourselves this whole time anyway, right? Um, and even for us to take some action, but that extra step of our parents and our grandparents and changing their way of thinking is going to be our biggest battle. It's, it's the whole um, trying, to, trying to change someone's belief. The hardest thing you can ever do is try to change someone else's belief. And the reason for it is ego. And we cannot be, we can't just be unaware of, of, of our shitty part thus far, mm -hmm. I will say, you know, and, and yep. like, and just the benefits that we have had living in this country and being brown, you know, being Asian American and, and, you know, having, we, we we get all sorts of benefits from that. I mean, there's not to say that we don't struggle, but it's not the black struggle. It's not. It's not, it's it's not, not. the black struggle. And it's on, like, on. It's not I think really every, every single minority in the U.S. at one point or another can say, yeah, I face discrimination. I yeah, face I face prejudice, right? But 
any any single black person can say that minority's experience is my experience, but no single minority can say the black experience is my experience. Never, they can never make that claim. There was I, I remember reading something where like it, it really just it hit so hard. Someone put something along the lines of, "You will never truly know how we feel in this until you turn the TV on and watch your own extinction happening." Like. Yeah. How much harder can you drive that home? You mentioned um, Gandhi Ji and Bhagat Singh and their parallels between um, MLK and Malcolm X. That is beautiful. I want to talk about that. That's something that so, I feel can be huge. Can disclaimer: I'm I'm not like perfect on history, so I'm sure I'm going to get fact checked like crazy on it. That's But okay. for me, for me, the the way I've talked to certain people about it is because they'll they'll keep bringing up hey why are you rioting why are you looting this should be completely peaceful it needs to be completely nonviolent look mlk follow gandhi let's follow gandhi and what i what i say in response to that is that it wasn't just gandhi who did it he wasn't the only person who was a freedom fighter in india there were tons of people who literally went to battle with the british swords yeah. and you name it like his his modern day equivalent not modern day but in his time his equivalent or his companion i guess would be bhagat singh he he wasn't peaceful nonviolent like he also went to courthouses and through the same cause same cause same cause but he knew that they had to be heard he's he's gone to courthouses and and thrown smoke bombs and and flashbangs at that point in time to cause a scene to cause a disturbance cause a riot but thou actually trying to kill someone but that was just different philosophies on we need to be heard on what's going on and they need to know someone is here to fight it mm-hmm. and then i would always draw that back to if mlk was quote unquote gandhi then his bhagat singh would be malcolm x they would be the black panthers someone who made themselves known in a more physical way mm-hmm. there there have been others that even go on to say that it's not that he was 100% nonviolent Yeah. If you really take that word violent, it doesn't just mean physical acts. It could also mean verbal, mental, like violent nature. So they even went on to talk about how when he was jailed, he would weaponize fasting and hold that against whoever has him in jail. Mm-hmm. Where he would and I'm sure everyone's heard about his massive long fast that he did, but that's how he would hold that against whoever has him captive. Hey, I'm just not going to eat while I'm here and if I die that's on your hands. It's not you can't really claim that to be non-violent. You're you're still in a sense you're still protesting out there. something. Yeah. You're putting you're out some, some kind of violent vibes, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so one last conversation and a really important one to me. I speak with Abir and Lala, a Bengali and black couple about media coverage of the protests and how to keep the momentum going beyond that. We start with them describing a protest that they went to. When you're actually if you're not there, you're not necessarily getting like the full picture of everything. Um at least from our perspective when we went to a lot to the protests in Boston like a couple of weeks ago, like it was like 95 97% peaceful. Yeah. And um and it was it, it was it was it wasn't just like the 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 stunning thing about it was that I just felt like it was pretty multicultural multi ethnic you know like mm-hmm. there was like definitely a lot more diversity in these protests than you would otherwise think yeah um which makes me think that there's some sort of like tipping point socially where like a lot of people just 
had enough, you know, mm -hmm. of this. And um, I do think that there's a lot of, you know, like when you watch the local news coverage of a lot of this, it's like, it's not necessarily giving you the full picture. Um, I would say that unfortunately, like hours and hours of protesting, like stories about that don't get as many views as things burning, unfortunately, like things burning, people looting, like the more sensational the story, the more views you get. Yeah. Exactly. And like um, the local news, Unfortunately, their job isn't necessarily about telling us the news, it's about getting ratings. People love controversy. Um, that's yeah. what gets the ratings, that's what get the, gets the views. And it's unfortunate, but I mean, we see that. We see that a lot of people right now are saying like, the media is the enemy. And I mean, there's truth to that. And I think that sometimes there's like a narrative that they wanna push and that's what they're gonna focus on the most. Yeah. So what and do we do if we can't trust the media? Uh, I mean, it, you, you need to be aware of the incentives, right? So, like, um, I, think, I think the most, most important thing is to just be aware of the incentives, right? Like, if you think That's about it, like, the local news, like, they, they work with, like, the local anything, right? The local DA, um, the local cops, like, they, they, they want to get their stories directly from these sources, right? if they're even critical of the cops a little bit, like they, they work with these people like every day, right? So like they don't have much of an incentive to really be difficult on, on the local cops, even if that's what the truth is, like that yeah. they should be. You know? So like they're not going to really run stories that are critical of the cops. They're just not going to, you know, mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's just the way it is. Like I mean, yeah. a lot of what happens, even with these police brutality cases, like, the pe like okay if you're a cop it's already pretty hard to like press charges against cops for anything just because of the way the laws are written and the leeway they get um you know to protect themselves if they feel you know threatened and, and they're obviously risking their lives in a lot of situations but like um the you know like the local the people who are prosecuting the cops actually work with the cops the local da's work with the cops like it's hard for them to like if you work with someone and you have to like really bucked their ass in court like it's it's the incentives are kind of skewed there right so like that's why a lot of these cases never end up even if they're charged they're not necessarily convicted because like it's they they're not able to really convict you know because they they go hard they don't go hard on the cops yeah. unfortunately because they work with these people day to day mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. you just got to be aware of incentives and just be informed i think it's the most important thing i completely don't condone rioting, looting, any of that. But this is, that's the sentiment that a lot of, at least not the random sus rioters that we keep seeing that they're actually like random white people who seem to be just like fighting <laughs> yeah. violence. But like the whole idea about this rioting and looting is that if we attack these people where it hurts, which is usually the money, they have no choice but to speak up or mm -hmm. do something. So if we're going after these big names, these big corporate companies, these targets, they have to say like, okay, well, if this is gonna affect us because now they're like going after our stores, we have to do something. And mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the, the, the logic if there is, or for lack of a better term, behind it. And I think that that's what's yeah. happening. Yeah, sure. 
So um, I wanted to ask you, when you do talk about systemic racism with people who maybe are like just starting to get into it, what are some scenarios in which you would bring this up? Yeah. Now, although uh, we were talking yesterday and you mentioned bringing it up in the workplace, which I yeah, thought was a really good suggestion. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's going to be important. Like, so one thing that made me think about the workforce, workforce, sorry, in general was that we were talking about it and he was saying that, like, he doesn't think social media is definitely the right place to, like, really try to have these conversations because, like, you can go on and on for days. And I was like, well, how can we actually have these conversations in person? Like, it's really hard to just have these conversations because everyone knows when it comes to, like, politics, race, blah, 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 people don't really talk about those things. Like, it's kind of taboo to talk about those in a real big public setting. Mm -hmm. So how can we kind of keep these conversations rolling? And I think one way to do that is by having these conversations come up at work because, you know, our right now we're seeing there's a lot of pressure on these, like, um, companies to, like, say something see what see what they're doing and then people are kind of going back and saying okay well let's see a picture of your executive board like what, what is that like, you know yeah. really trying to address that and i know that in a lot of companies you know there's they try to have these diversity and inclusion groups that have conversations and stuff and and the last company i was at we had that as well and i think that that's the perfect way to open up these conversations to really have people go to the town halls or whatever you want to call it at your company and like really talk about this stuff, really get people's opinions, opinions out there because it's, it's a place where, you know, we have to be at work. Um, so we have to have this conversation. If we want to run away from our work for 15 minutes or an hour to be at this meeting, then we have to participate in these conversations. And I think that that's a way to get more people talking and to keep it, keep the conversation going. So I think that work and if, our com if these companies are going to put out issue their little Black Lives Matter statement, pay it forward, really have conversations happening and really try to combat and talk about the problems that are that system systematic or systemic racism, um, how they even affect the job force. So, like, I mean, and it's apparent. I mean, in the last company I was at, they praised, like, the, their diversity and inclusion and um, whatnot. And... At one point, I was the only black person on my team, and like, and that was like a team of like thirty to forty people. So there's an issue here, um, and we need to have these conversations. So I really think that trying to have them in the workforce is like definitely a place um, where these conversations can continue to happen and not just kind of get swept under the rug. And, um, in college, my sister and I um, had joined basically an all-white sorority, and you know, at the time, I think we were the first black women to join, and I noticed that individually and even collectively as an organization, um, people weren't really talking. People weren't saying anything about donating. People weren't at protests. People were just kind of like not even addressing it. And so I felt bothered by that. And I took it upon myself to try to craft up a message that was completely like trying not to be aggressive, but like trying to be like educational, informative. And I was like, hey, I joined this sorority so, so many years ago and I joined knowing that I was probably one of the only black people that looked like me that have ever joined this organization. And you know why? Because I felt welcomed. I felt like I was accepted. And, you know, I just want to help you guys educate. I know there's a lot of people out there who, well, I want to help educate, sorry. Um, I know there's a lot of people out there who may not know what to say, not, may not know what to do and, you know, so forth. Um, so I just like linked a bunch of different like a little infographics that you see like surfacing around um, 
Instagram, Facebook, social media, basically. And I was like, these are things you can do. These are conversations you can have. This is what you can choose to do during this time rather than act like this isn't happening and act like this isn't a problem. And then I like, you know, not to like, I like, I really wanted to not be aggressive because I didn't want to come off as the angry black girl. But like, I really tried to stress that like, you know, this is important. Like, I don't need to see your statuses about it, but I need you to be doing something to understand. Yeah. So like I put, you know, I try to throw our little sorority pillars, like what our, what our letters stand for. And I was like, mm -hmm. friendship, service, and responsibility, because like that's the organization I joined. So if we're not talking about this, we're not doing our job. And, you know, I just felt like it was, it was, it was important for me to speak up about that. And I feel like it was, it was really well was recepted. Um, obviously there were probably people who saw, clicked away, didn't think about it twice, but like, yeah. there were definitely a lot of people who did say like, you know, thank you for posting this. Like, think this has been helpful, like, and reached out to me personally. And I think that that's like important and that's the power of social media. I, first of all, you're a whole saint for bringing that up in like, cause you so don't have to do that. Like it is not up to you to like educate people on the black struggle or like why people should care. Like it's so like, it's, that's amazing that you did that first of all. And um, I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad that that worked out for you. I had a similar situation where I went to a smaller high school. So there were like 90 kids in my, in my graduating class. And it's been like that every year. And um, it's really hard. Um, it's really, it was really hard, but this one Asian kid brought up kid alumni brought up that like hey guys like our school is racist and most of us are Asian it was a magnet school so most of us were Asian it was like 60% Asian or more or something like that um and it had to be that Asian person giving the black alumni a platform and saying like hey Asians we need to take accountability because we're also racist and our school is racist and then all the black alumni started talking about like all of these things happened to me stuff they've been holding on to for like years and years and I'm like Oh, fuck wow. this this sucks like this fucking sucks like this is like Wait, teachers that i never would have expected school what do you mean by that like what when you say your school what exactly do you mean by that the school was i mean the school was kind of racist because it was like, like there were a lot of asians that had like all these like, expressed like all these microaggressions against like you know our black classmates which like at least uh -huh. if it's kids that's one thing but like the teachers were doing some like really questionable stuff too yeah, yeah, really? like not believing in their black students or like just we making weird comments and like these this is stuff they've held on to for all these years and we're like finally talking about it but like it just sucks mm. that it took that Asian alumni to give yeah. black people that space because they didn't feel secure enough to talk about enough it and it speaks to it. their experience it speaks to what their experience was like in high school yeah. and I'm like it's I'm like I, I feel shameful about it I'm like I can't believe like that that's what my high school was like yeah, yeah. If any of these conversations appeal to you, you can watch the full version of each of them on our IGTV on Instagram. If you feel you have anything to contribute, you can reach out to us via Instagram as well at the Desi Condition. I'm hoping to keep scheduling live events about South Asian accountability because it really needs to be talked about almost incessantly in order for that learning, that internalizing, and for that unlearning to take place. There's a couple of things that I want to address. I posted a video at the end of May on Instagram called What South Asians Owe Black People, and it's exactly what it sounds like it is. I talk about the civil rights movements that have made it possible for us to enjoy things that we take for granted, like having a job or having a home, even having friends of different cultures and colors. 
this was meant to be a list of talking points for family and friends. I never meant that to imply that it's why we should care. Like I said before, we should just care because we should just care. It's not a tit for tat scenario. Uh, I've seen a lot of similar content floating around after I posted that too, and I think that I could have been clearer about that distinction earlier. Educating yourself is important. Educate yourself on Black history, read books talking about anti-Blackness and systemic racism and white fragility and whatnot. Do it. You have to do it. But also read books about Black people who are just living. Um, who don't talk about race at all and just talk about their regular lives or else other mundane shit. I worry that now that South Asians have begun to care, especially for those who maybe don't have a lot of black friends, we might start to associate black people with their traumas. Please remember that black people are more than their painful traumatic history too. It seems really obvious, but I think realizing this is a big, big part of decolonization work. One thing I've noticed is that people who are just waking up to systemic racism often saying things like, they just thought black people were slaves, they just truly didn't know. Yeah, that's what they want you to think. That's what our curriculums teach us, that they were enslaved and then they were freed and they make it seem that simple. And seeing them as just formerly enslaved or just targets of white supremacy or whatever one thing or another is you falling right into the colonizer's trap. One last point. Activism comes from a place of humility. It comes from a need to keep asking yourself questions and understanding that you can be wrong. It requires understanding that for every question you have, there's 10 more questions you don't even know you have. You have to realize that you don't even know what your questions are. You don't know what you don't know. You have to be okay with being educated and called out. Hopefully not in a rude way, but if it happens, there's no shame. Be open to change. You know, clearly we all have biases and, you know, I'm not sitting here trying to tell you that I'm the perfect activist, but I'm talking about it because it's something that I have been doing for a little well, I started at a younger age, and I would not call myself the perfect ally, but, but I, I know that I approach the work with the level of humility, and so I'm always approaching ideal allyship. There's always going to be something for me to learn, but I'm open to it, and I'm not sitting here trying to think that I'm the best version. And that's also why I feel like I need to have these conversations with people on IG Live, because if I truly knew everything, I would just tell you everything. I don't know everything. And so I keep bringing people in. So clearly we all have biases, but it's what we do that with them that matters. I read a quote once that I think sums it up nicely. It says, the first thought that goes through your mind is what you have been conditioned to think. What you think next defines who you are. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and most of all, I hope you learned something. If you have any thoughts or feedback, or you'd like to collaborate with us on this or anything else, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Daisy Condition, as well as Twitter at TDC Podcast underscore, or via email at thedaisycondition at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Remember to make good choices and to hold yourself and your friends and your family accountable. Talk to you next time.